Test, test. I just like to see the little squiggly lines on the screen. That's why I do what I do, really. <laughs> That's really funny. Thanks. You can leave that in? I think so. That's our intro right there. Gabe's here for the squiggly lines. Welcome to the new and improved three-person podcast. We've done three before, but never in this room. So we're continuing our way through the Academy Award season. Best Picture nominations. One word at a time. The Trial of the Chicago 7. That's the episode that we're doing today. Thanks for coming. Gabe, who do we have with us today? We have back, by popular demand, (laughs) Allie Burnett. Yay! I'm laughing because there's like five people that listen to the podcast. (laughs) Say hi. Hello. Hello. Great to have you here again before you give birth to our second child. Great to be here. Congrats, by the way. Thank you. Did you guys hear about the Academy Awards? They're trying to ban Zoom calls for acceptance speeches and stuff like that? No. Why? Because they're really concerned about their ratings. For those who don't know, the Academy Awards, also known as the Oscars, have been struggling in the rating season for many years now. They've been sort of on a decline. Yeah. As you can imagine, not too many people are interested in the whites. Yeah, still as enthusiastic mm. as they used to be about watching a bunch of rich white people jerk each other off for a few hours at a time with wow. ads every few minutes. Wow. I could have said that more politely, but that's essentially what it is, and that's why we like to talk about it. Anyway, they're trying to get rid of Zoom call-ins to get people to actually be excited about seeing their favorite rich white person come up to the stage and accept their award, or in this case, maybe a rich black person. Or we even have up, uh, which we'll talk about on the next podcast maybe, Riz Ahmed is Muslim. He's the first Muslim to be nominated. He's from Pakistan. That's cool. Yeah. Let's get into the stats for the The trial of the Chicago 7. Fast stats. Quick stats? Quick stats. So today we're talking about the trial of of the (laughs) shish kebab? (laughs) Trial of the Chicago 7, a picture that was produced. uh, Paramount, I think, shouldered the burden for this one as some of the other people were concerned about funding. Actually, funny story here. This picture was originally supposed to be made 15 years ago by Steven Spielberg. Uh, Oh, I think I heard that. DreamWorks and Amblin were involved this time around, too. But yeah, it was supposed to be made 15 years ago, and it took its first hit because of the writer's strike. Mm. And then every few years, people tried to get it made. I think at one point, Paul Greengrass was supposed to make it, and it just kept falling through until finally Aaron Sorkin said, I'll do it myself. And he made it. I think this is his second directorial credit as it is. Anyway, the film was... I was about to say, who's the director? (laughs) Yeah, written and directed for the screen, or in this case, uh, Netflix. (laughs) For the stream. (laughs) By Aaron Sorkin himself, the master wordsmith. He's scripted many films and TV shows. He kind of blew up through West Wing, and he's done the newsroom, and he did uh, social network for... Oh, that's right. I forgot that he wrote that. I think that's why I enjoy that movie so much. He's really known for his quick-witted dialogue. Sorkinism. Very, very fast, yeah. Steve Jobs, he did that one with Fastbender. There has been a term invented around his name called Sorkinism. Sorkinism. Moving forward, like I said, this is Aaron Sorkin's only second or third picture that he's actually directed himself. He did Molly's Game a few years ago with Jessica Chastain. Did he direct that? Yeah. Oh, we saw that movie. Mm -hmm. He's very familiar with political stuff, courtroom stuff. The trial of the Chicago 7 is something that came very naturally to him. Once he started going, he initially said 15 years ago, when Spielberg had approached him to do the script, he actually had no idea what had happened in 1968 at the DNC. 
Mm. Kind of like us before we saw the film. Right. You did a lot of research on this, right? After you watched it? Uh, yeah, I was curious how accurate this film was to the actual events of history. And we can talk about that after, but it's... Okay. Uh, after the stats. It's not super accurate. Oh. The, the general strokes are there. Yeah. Like there was a trial. <laughs> um, but a lot of the details are switched around for different reasons. Anyway, I don't think we said yet they did this for about $35 million. Which is a pretty, mm. I like to use the word modest budget, I guess, when you think about the blockbusters. Yeah, it's on the cheaper side. Yeah. But honestly, for a movie like this, if it's over 20 mil, that's a pretty good budget. Yeah, they spent most of the movie in a courtroom. So with an ensemble cast like this, it, I guess. And it didn't feel like that, though. Yeah, it was a kind of sprawling story. Uh, anyway, it was edited by Alan Baumgarten, or Baumgarten, who's worked with Sorkin before. He did Molly's Game. Mm-hmm as well as some other pictures, American Hustle. Mm-hmm. The editing was very important to this film, mm-hmm. so that's mm-hmm. why I bring it up. True. We're editors. Yeah. We edit things. That's something we do. The DP on this one was, and I looked this one up to pronounce it correctly because it's pretty tricky, Fedon Papamikael, <laughs> who's a pretty popular cinematographer yeah. in the industry. You might be familiar with his work. He did Walk the Line. Mm. Um, Nebraska, which won some awards a few years back. He also more recently did Ford vs. Ferrari. Okay. So I looked it up this time, and it's Fedon <laughs> or Fedon Papa Mikael. <laughs> it's not Papa Michael. It's Papa Mikael. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Papa Burgundy. The composer for this one was Daniel Pemberton, mm. who has an extensive list of credits. Yeah, I've heard of him for sure. Uh, most notably, probably from the last few years, is he worked on the score for Into the Spider-Verse. Usually the first thing people think of of that movie is the soundtrack. The music, yeah. Yeah, but he did the score for it, so he's there too. Yeah. Very accomplished composer. And then also, because this is a period piece, I like to throw out the production designer's name, Shane Valentino. Mm. I recognized some of his stuff. He did Nocturnal Animals a few years ago, which I was a big fan of, and Beginners, which is actually another one of my favorite films. Very small little cult indie I'm familiar, cult classic. I'm familiar with it. We're all uh, about cult classics on this yeah. podcast. Uh, and also mainstream stuff, too. That's yeah. Why, that's why we're doing comic book movies. True. <laughs> uh, so that's basically all I had for the team working on that one. But Sure, sure. Uh, well, there's also the cast, I why guess. Why don't you talk about the cast? The ensemble cast. Yeah. Do you want to read them? Sure. I, I just have their thing pulled yeah, up. Let me, let me read their thing. There's, and you can go as many as you want. There's yeah, a lot. let me read as many as I want. And these are all real people, or they were before they died. Eddie Redmayne, who you might know. Academy Award winner, Eddie Redmayne? Yeah, he's done a lot of crazy good works. Played Tom Hayden or Thomas Hayden? Yeah, he was the Democratic student's... Probably the protagonist of the film. Yeah, he was the focus for this one. Yeah, he was so focused on. Alex (laughs) Alex Sharp played Rennie Davis. I wasn't really familiar with him, but... Yeah. He was good. Yeah, same. Sasha Baron Cohen of Borat fame played abby hoffman of the could have been freddie mercury fame yeah jeremy strong played jerry rubin um john <laughs> carroll lynch <laughs> who oh gosh i know him from some show i can't remember played david dellinger dillinger dillinger derringer uh <laughs> was a bit in the film. yaya abdalmutin who we all love from black manta watchman what he was black manta as well but oh, also yeah, black manta i was like but your first thought went to Black Manta? Oh, uh, yeah. Over o- Dr. Manhattan? Only because of all the Justice League stuff happening. All right. 
Aquaman. Anyway, he's an amazing actor. He played Bobby Seal. Mark Rylance, very, very popular actor. I think he was in uh, Bridge of Spies. Yeah, he was the bridge of the spies. Yeah. <laughs> he, he played William Kunstler. Joseph Gordon-Levitt played the Prosecutor. prosecuting mm-hmm. attorney. Uh, Richard Schultz, and it was the first time we've seen him in a while. Uh, ben Shankman played Leonard Wineglass. He's a very, very popular actor. He's J.C. McKenzie played Thomas Foran. Frank Langella from Superman Returns fame played Judge Julius Hoffman, mm. the crazy antagonist of the film. Oh, yeah. And uh, let's see. We got a couple other white guys. Michael Keaton showed up in this. Yeah, a little cute little cameo. Mm, that was Ramsey Clark. He played Ramsey Clark. He was the attorney general for Johnson. And then Fred Hampton, who we talked about in the last podcast from Judas and the Black Messiah, that was played by Kelvin Harrison Jr. He did a good job. Um, very different kind of portrayal from the previous portrayal. but still We good. didn't have as many speeches to do as Daniel Kaluuya. That's true. He basically just like whispered in the ear and... Moved on. He's, yeah, he spent most of his lines of whispering in Mateen's ear. Anyway, there's a bunch of other... This, this cast is huge. It goes down. Like Gabe said, and there's a lot of very popular B and C list actors. Okay. Do you want to tell us what happens? Oh, yeah. Let's, let's talk about the plot. In 1968, <laughs> at a Democratic convention to elect the next candidate for the Democratic Party after Lyndon Johnson left office, a bunch of hippies... Well, all kinds of people. All kinds of people. Hippies were just one group of people. Well, most of them were hippies, but that was incidental. Uh, A bunch of people gathered, and they were camping out and stuff, as they did in the 60s, to... They wanted to be heard. ...speak their voice. And also, sort of, to... Their main reason was because they were really against the Vietnam War that was happening at the time, and... Not to mention the racial tensions. Very, which, which have not died since Yeah, I think MLK had like just been assassinated, right? At some point, some of the leaders of this, these hundreds of people that are kind of on this lawn in Chicago, they rile up the crowd and the crowd starts marching and then the police take action and it's very unclear who acted first. Anyway, the leaders of this group get arrested and put on trial a year later, 1969. So this movie takes place in 69 as we're looking at flashbacks from 68. And they're kind of retelling the story from their perspective about really who acted first in the riots of Chicago at that time of 68. And then the kind of overarching theme of this movie is, as it was at the time, it was bringing into question what our government actually is and stands for and how it sticks up for us and racial tensions and injustice. Yeah, it's a very political movie. It's a super political movie, but it really hammers home that idea the way that Sorkin wrote this story out. As Gabe said, it is different from how it actually happened to play out more like a Hollywood film, but it really makes you question and see things from a different perspective and yeah well the whole idea and the characters keep harping on this specifically abby hoffman played by sacha baron cohen was this whole thing was a political trial this was a sort of the new administration under nixon it was their way of blasting the opposition to show the world that they weren't going to have any of this any of these young people standing up a lot of these left-leaning progressive people and like you said there were a lot of different people that showed up for this and they came from many different places across the country so the idea of the trial was to 
get them on incitement to start riots and charges of conspiracy and, you know, moving across state lines and stuff like that. Because people came from all over the country to Chicago for the Democratic National Convention in 1968. Mm -hmm. And then, like you said, that's where the riots broke out. So that trial was the focus of the film, and then it keeps cutting back to the riots. Yeah, that's why we said the editing was really kind of the star of the show here Mm -hmm. outside of the you know the writing and the characters is because that was that was really important like the whole intro of the film is cutting between four or five different groups of people including bobby seal of the black panthers gathering for this moment and he's an interesting character too because he's like the eighth of the chicago seven as he was uh as they discuss in the film he was barely in chicago he was lopped in with the others to try to make the group of people who were being charged a scarier group because he was black because he represented the black panther party i think he was one of the founders actually with huey newton anyway so yeah the story revolves around that and then he's there was a mistrial and he's he gets to leave uh after being bound and gagged by the very sinister judge julius hoffman who we've (laughs) crazy yeah, and Frank Langella, who played him, he went on record in interviews talking about how he was delighted to play such a, in, an insidious character with so few redeeming qualities. <laughs> I think he said it was the most fun villain that he'd played since, like, Skeletor, mm. you know, in the, from He-Man. The He-Man movie. Because this guy, and apparently, of all the things they changed for this film, apparently two of the things they, in fact, didn't play up to the level of was just how antagonistic this character was the judge in this trial and also the bounding and the gagging of bobby seal was apparently even more intense than it was in the film they would do stuff like i think at one point they punched him in his groin Mm -hmm. Uh, and he was bound and gagged for that matter not just for a single day but for several days before he was called in the mistrial that he got to leave it's crazy yeah uh, and then, yeah, the film moves forward from there, and they're acquitted on certain charges, and they're not on the rest. And then there was an appeal a couple years later where another judge and other people determined that the whole thing was basically for naught, because Judge Julius Hoffman from the original trial was extremely antagonistic, and right. he behaved in such a way that they were able to get rid of the trial, because... Mm. And it's made very clear in the film that he was just... He was not giving these people their proper due process so anyway that's that's the meat of it there's a lot of characters with a lot of different storylines in this film and they all did a really great job the ensemble cast i thought was was really good and i mean the whole intention behind it it's a very political movie i think just it felt applicable to today in terms of like how politically intense it felt how racially charged it felt yeah i didn't know much honestly about that whole historical era in terms of like the trial and what was going on or even any of those historical figures names so it was all kind of new to me i don't think it's really taught in school no (laughs) i mean i definitely didn't i mean i mean i learned about i learned about certain events that happened during that time like obviously the vietnam war the black panthers the assassination of mlk yes major events like that but not as microscopic as this specific trial which at the time wasn't microscopic, but... No, yeah, no. Sort of. And we it was it's interesting, too. We talked about watching this film right after Judas and the Black Messiah, mm-hmm. which sort of parallels the events of this film. And like you said, we see the character of Fred Hampton in both movies, this young, charismatic leader of, of you know, minorities in Chicago. Right. 
uh, and he was killed over the course of the events. Unlike in the film where it's shown he dies before Bobby Seal is bound and gagged, he's in real life he actually passes away after the trial, or sorry, he's mm-hmm. executed after the trial ends and, and Bobby Seal mm-hmm. uh, gets to leave. But yeah, this was an incredibly turbulent time in American history. And it's interesting thinking about it politically because, and I, I've done a little bit of digging on Aaron Sorkin and he's, I mean, he's an interesting character as most. Probably left, right? Left leaning? Yeah, I mean, as most people in Hollywood probably would identify with, he is more or less, you know, what you would call a liberal but he's very much, very much a centrist, from what I've been able to pull up, in okay. the sense that, like, yeah, in, in the same way you would expect most powerful Hollywood people would be, yeah, because you can sort of win both. You can still be a liberal and still celebrate capitalism, right? Enjoy the fruits of yeah. Being you, you in can you can have the best privilege. of both worlds. You can be politically correct or you know uh, populist right. in that sense, but you can also be rich mm-hmm. and powerful. Uh, anyway, so that it's an interesting perspective to consider when you think about a lot of the things that were changed, and this is where some of my research sort of came up, so you might hear a lot of my voice in the next couple minutes, but this is where a lot of the things I was digging into, he, they changed a lot of the events, like I said, for the course of the film. For instance, it wasn't just the names of American soldiers that they were reading off of, mm. or that they were reading off. Uh, both at the end of the trial and over the course of the trial, it was also the names of the Viet Cong mm. that had been killed over the course of the trial. Oh. And, and at one point, they draped an American flag over the bench and some of the tables in there, and they also draped uh, the, the Vietnamese flag over the table. So they they were representing, mm. you know, not just the American people, but the rights of all people, the Vietnamese slang. people. Yeah, mm. like like we like we've heard so many of these slogans. Like, uh, you know, they were representing not just themselves, but humanity. Yeah. For people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in general. That's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's just one of the little things. There was kind of a, not to discredit the work they did on the film, because it really is not just an impressive film technically, but this story, it's cool to have this told on such a level. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, there were a lot of little things like that over the course of the film that were just tweaked or, or toned down to the point where. You can kind of see Sorkin's own politics come into the mix because he is very much sort of that neoliberal sort of centrist figure. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of the people in this film are much more left-leaning than they would have seemed in this film. Like Thomas Hayden, the character played by Eddie Redmayne. Mm -hmm. That's his name, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. In this film, he sort of seems like the more, one of the less crazy individuals. Yeah, the grounded is the perfect word for this context because that's he's sort of like the focal point of the film and the point where Sorkin tried to get you to move towards because he's like the reasonable guy. He's right. the he's more the centrist. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in real life, he participated in a lot of the antics of the rest of the group, and he wasn't quite as clean cut. Yeah, as as the film. That's actually another perfect word uh, because it wasn't as clean cut. Uh, a lot of these guys were. Well, there is, there is that one scene, too, where some of the other guys comment, like, did you get a haircut just for this <laughs> trial? He's like, yeah, I That did. did not happen in real life. Right. Yeah. And so they literally made him more clean cut than he yeah, was. Yeah, they had to give the appeal to the audience for the larger demographic. Because just like today, uh, or back then, rather, when you show these extremely progressive politics and these very left-leaning idealists, a lot of the times it becomes, uh, it turns a lot of people off. And that was something else they showed in the film. Abby Hoffman, the character that Sacha Baron 
Cohen played was he was like the hippie guy who was right. espousing, you know, a real cultural revolution rather than a systemic yeah. reform through the system. Through the government. Which was Thomas Hayden's angle. He was the guy that was like, we have to use the system to beat the system. Mm-hmm. We beat the opposition through elections. And Sacha Baron Cohen... Abby Hoffman and the rest of the guys were like, it's so much more than that. And it's funny drawing comparisons like that, too, because a lot of figures in history, MLK even is one who is whitewashed by modern history books as being a very peaceful. Yeah. And calm of demeanor and more centrist in politics, where in real life he was much (laughs) his views were very much more a socialist. And he mm-hmm. was someone, you know, he said, like, violent revolution becomes inevitable when peaceful revolution is made impossible. And that's essentially right. what we have. And that's why you have so many things happening today, too. Like, the same level of the riots that were happening then are still going on today. I mean, you just look at the Black Lives Matter stuff from last year, and you see the people who are... There are a lot of comparisons to be drawn, mm-hmm. I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and not much has changed, honestly, over the course of the last... 50, 60 years. Mm-hmm. So we, we've talked about this before, um, different podcasts. Yeah, yeah. I can't stop thinking about last night's episode of the Falcon and the Winter Soldier and how even Marvel is really playing into the BLM right now. Yeah. And it's weird because at, at some level I'm it's thinking. Di- it's Disney, too, yeah. which is like crazy to me. Yeah. And when corporations become part of the conversation, it's kind of like, well, are you just doing what's popular? <laughs> right. That's kind of what my, I mean, I think no matter what exposure and if, if something sparks those conversations, it's a good thing. But at the same time, it does feel like a lot of people are using it as because it's bandwagoning. Yeah. Which doesn't feel as authentic. Right. As people who have done the work for years yeah and people <laughs> true people who are usually in the mix are usually uh very aware of that it's usually it feels a lot of the time very transparent when all of a sudden people become you know a part of that fight right mm-hmm. especially corporations mm-hmm. you know they become woke all of a sudden for instance when lgbtq plus pride month and you see corporations putting out their rainbow banners and mm-hmm. stuff like that it just feels very uh hollow mm-hmm. you know or, or hallmark if you will. Yeah. You just special line of Hallmark greeting cards coming out for this Black Lives Matter. It is interesting. <laughs> However, I think, I mean, to be a little bit more optimistic about it, it does bring that social consciousness to the mm-hmm. forefront of people's minds in our society. And if, even if people start bandwagoning, it's, it's a good thing to bandwagon for, you know? And at least, yeah, at least their eyes are open it. A good deed done for the wrong reasons. Still well, a good deed. well, if everyone hops on the bandwagon of like sticking up for everyone that is black and Asian and you know POC, like that's a that's a good thing in the end. Hopefully, if you know cancel culture, you know actually allows it so that everyone has an equal playing ground. That is the eventual goal for Martin Luther King. He used to say that after he defeated racism, his next goal was to bring equality to everyone in the world. Big, big plan. He had that plan. He had that idea. He wanted to bring equality to everyone, not just black people, African-Americans at the time. And so it really is about humanity as a whole and, and equality for everyone, I think. And so if people are bandwagoning, you know, I don't see it as a, a bad thing. It, it is kind of like a punch to the gut. I used to like comic books before 
Marvel was a thing and now everyone <laughs> likes Marvel in the films, but like, I still feel like, well, you don't really know anything about the comic book. So, you know, but I, I'm still happy that, you know, people like this stuff and I can talk about it more openly with people like in a social setting. Yeah. So that's, that is a benefit, you know? Yeah. I think, I think it's like some, there's a lot of people who are frustrated, I think for the people who all of a sudden they're starting to care or say something. I mean, honestly, it makes me think of like the bachelor. Cause we watched the bachelor season. Oh gosh. And that, um, that was intense. the bachelor it was the first, um, black bachelor. His name was Matt. And he ended up with a gal um, that he really was in love with. That he really, he really was in love with. Um, and she, well, we don't even need to get into it. But the point is, she, uh, she had kind of ignorantly posted some things that are seen as racist, not knowing um, the full extent of like the history she was representing, mm-hmm. and um, it made him take a step back, break up with her, and essentially it's because you know he didn't want to be the one to have to explain to her why what she did was wrong it's like she had she was in the place where she needed to be explained to and i think a lot of people specifically are frustrated that there's so many people that are needing to be explained to why certain things are wrong and so i get that that part you know even though it's like great that everyone's talking about it, it's also like I think there's a frustration from from the people who yeah hundred percent have been doing the work 100%. or in that place themselves. Yeah. To reiterate my point, though, the benefit of popularizing advocacy for minorities is that it does bring uh, the ignorant people up a level, right. mm-hmm. you know, and they are going to be. Ho- I mean, hopefully, uh, you know, America as an example super divided but hopefully some of the more ignorant people can be brought up you know a higher stage of thinking because in social awareness because it is on everyone's minds and everyone is talking about it mm-hmm. that's all i'm really saying is that's the dream <laughs> i i know i'm i'm an idealist for sure but um are you optimistic because i'm not <laughs> i'm i'm with what i call it an uh an optimistic cynic cynical optimist what do they say they say like every isn't it like every 30 years there's um like historically like a a social upheaval um to some sorts and so jean jackets are back in if you look at the set were they ever not (laughs) if you look at that time period and obviously we're a little more than 30 years from then but if if you look at that as you know that this big social upheaval and then what we've been through in the past, you know, yeah. specifically year and all of the political and social tension, I think. Yeah. Yeah, what we're seeing in, in film mirrors that. And mm-hmm. it's just history playing back itself, but in new ways. Yeah, this is a important conversation. I'm glad that we recorded it. Mm-hmm. Let's ask the bigger question to tie up uh, this podcast. Will it win? <laughs> Will it win Best Picture? Probably not. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think so. Ally, it might, uh, I mean, we already know it's nominated for a few awards. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we forgot to say what it's nominated for. Like across the board? Yeah, it is nominated for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor, with Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, Best Original Screenplay, Aaron Sorkin, Best Film Editing for Alan Baumgarten, uh, and Best Cinematography for Papa Michael. Papa Michael. 
Anyway, yeah, I don't think it'll win. Yeah, it's probably not going to win. <laughs> <laughs> Only because there's better stuff this year. Man, I watched, again, I still have not seen Minari, but I watched a trailer for it again today, and I was Soon. just like, it looks so dope. Yeah. It looks awesome. I mean, as much as it's sort of a budget roster, considering the coronavirus, uh, there's still some strong films on this list, and I don't think... This... Sorry, I cut you. <laughs> no, no, no. I, you're an extension of my myself. So. I was going to say this movie winning this year would be like Green Book winning Best Picture. That's a fair comparison. Which it did. And it was not the best movie that year at all. It was a good movie, and I think so decided, is this movie. It's yeah. a good movie, but <laughs> it's not the best of the bunch. However, again, with the weird rating system for the Oscars, who knows what can happen? I wonder if they're going to update it for this year. If they don't, then yeah, this film could win. I think <laughs> unlikely, though.